Welcome to the Rev Sarah Shares podcast for Sunday the 29th of January. We conclude our short series on the first chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where we look at the wisdom of the world and of God and realise that to know God is to belong to the crucified Christ. Not as complicated as it sounds. We do start, however, with our psalm for this week, which is Psalm 15, that helps us think about how we live our lives and that in doing so we proclaim Christ. Thanks to Lisa for the recordings and what you'll find is Psalm 15 and then a short reflection on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 to 30 with a slightly longer reflection on it. Thank you for joining with us and I hope that you feel encouraged and inspired. First reading today comes from Psalms 15. When God requires... Lord, who may enter your temple? Who may worship on Zion, on your sacred hill? A person who obeys God in everything and always does what is right, whose words are true and sincere, and who does not slander others. He does not wrong do wrong to his friends, nor spread rumours about his neighbours. He despises those of whom God rejects, but honours those who obey the Lord. He always does what he promises, no matter how much it may cost. He makes loans without charging interest and cannot be bribed to testify against the innocent. Whoever does these things will always be secure. I just want to share with you a short reflection on Psalm 15. When we're uh, around all the other people that come in on a Sunday morning, we will be looking at different items and encouraging people to work out the roles that people do. So we know, for example, by a uniform, whether a person works in ASDAs or Tesco's or if they're a police officer or, or a nurse or a doctor. And so we're going to have a bit of fun playing around with that. We even have some football colours for teams that are supported, perhaps we can tell a lot about a person just by looking at them, whether they are um, with their toolboxes or, you know, the, the spots on their clothes. You can always tell, for example, that my dad worked with cars and lorries because the amount of grime in his hands, the engine oil, the stains, and even the smell, dare I say it. And then we're thinking about the fact that Christians don't wear uniforms. Well, at least most of us don't. I have my uh, clerical collar on today, also known as a dog collar, which does tell people that know that symbol that I am a minister in the church and not, as a lot of primary school children like to call me, the prime minister. Perhaps some ministers even have very posh uniforms um, with lots of colour and glitter and gold and all that. We have nuns, for example, that have their habits. And other religions also have items that mark them out as followers of a particular faith. You might, at its most simple form, just wear a cross. But a cross has become, for many, just an item of jewellery and doesn't hold a particular religious significance. So we might not have a uniform we could possibly argue that wearing a cross symbolises our uniform, but it's not uh, known necessarily for it. It's not protected. But people should still be able to tell, cross or not cross, that whether or not we are Christians. 
And the psalmist gave us some ideas how they might do that. Now, some of what we suggest is true of all people of any faith or no faith. After all, they are living well in the community as well. But there are things that would mark us out. The very first one that the psalmist mentions is obeying God. And the ultimate commandment is to love God, love your neighbor and love yourself. So do people see us loving our neighbors, loving God, loving ourselves? What does that look like to your colleagues, your family, your neighbors, your classmates, your church family? The psalmist then goes on to say truth-telling in a manner of speaking. So no gossip, no slander, no spreading lies, no spreading stories. And that includes on social media. How much do we share that we shouldn't? How much do we enjoy reading the gossip about famous people, about celebrities? And yet we say that that's okay, but they are human beings too. And yet we are also to blame when they break down because of the amount of gossip that is spread. Samus then goes on to speak about keeping your promises. Can you be trusted? I promise to clean my room if I promise to do my homework. I promise to turn up on time. I do regularly promise to do that. And I'm getting better, just getting better. He says, though, even when it costs you, you should keep your promise. We're going to be asking people to make a Lent commitment, and that's to promise to turn up at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning for the five Sundays of Lent eh, leading up to Palm Sunday. So the five, first five Sundays of Lent where we will have a study on the Sabbath. I wonder how many will promise and I wonder how many will keep it. And then goes on to say, be responsible with money. My dad is a lifetime joker, but one thing he taught me as a child was you never joked about money. You were always responsible with it. And the psalmist speaks about lending without expecting interest. We're not banks. We're not looking to make a profit. And most importantly, don't be bribed with money or sweets or whatever it is. And lots of people in power get in trouble for bribes. And you might be tempted to cover for someone just because they promised you something great. Perhaps for our children, it might be sweets or Robux if you play that game. For us, well, we all know our weaknesses. And again, it's tied to trust. Indeed, not spreading lies and gossiping, etc. is tied to trust, being trusted with information, being trusted with money. So a Christian is someone who loves others, even the ones that are hard to love, who doesn't spread gossip, lies or slander, keeps their promises and is trustworthy through and through. Jesus took it, as he always does, that little bit further and encouraged us, indeed instructed us, to love our enemies. And that is possibly one thing that is different. If we started with obeying God as being a difference, loving our enemies would perhaps be another. Many people hate their enemies or want nothing to do with them. But Jesus told us to love them. And later in the service, we remember that Jesus died for the people he loved and for the people who were his enemies. His words, Father, forgive them, were words of love for enemies and friends and others alike. The psalmist tells us to start by obeying God. Jesus is God and Jesus says we must love. How will they know that we are Christians? Well, perhaps you remember that song. 
and they'll know that we're Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love. The second reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 18 to 31. Christ the power and the wisdom of God. For the message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost. But for us who are being saved, it is God's power. The scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the understanding of the scholars. So then, where does that leave the wise or the scholars or the skillful debaters of this world? God has shown that this world's wisdom is foolishness. For God in his wisdom made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by the means of the so-called foolish message we preach. God decided to save those who believe. Jews want miracles for proof and the Greeks look for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that is so offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those whom God has called both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For what seems to be God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and what seems to be God's weakness is the stronger than human strength. Now remember what you were, my brothers, when God called you. From the human point of view, few of you were of wise or powerful or of high social standing. God purposely chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise. And he chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. He chose what the world looks down on and despises and thinks is nothing in order to destroy the world thinks is important. This means that no one can boast in God's presence. But God has brought you into union with Christ Jesus, and God has made Christ to be our wisdom. By him we are put right with God. We become God's holy people and are set free. So then, as the scripture says, whoever wants to boast must boast of what the Lord has done. Amen. It's a wee while since I spent much time in the company of Paul. Paul is a challenging read and his ability to form cohesive thoughts in manageable sentences is, well, challenging. And it's not the easiest passage to read out loud either, so I'm sorry for that, Lisa. But it's not the hardest. He does have a few other corkers in there somewhere. Paul squeezes a lot into just a little bit, and you could say three sermons on one chapter is overkill. I think you could probably spend quite a lot of time in one chapter of Paul. But I hope that you've enjoyed this wee trip to Corinth, and we may or may not make it back there uh, over the coming weeks. It's important to remember, especially if you're new to this um, and you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, that Corinth is a Roman settlement. And though filled with people from various neighbouring cultures and ethnicities, there would also have been a strong Roman contingency and therefore outlook. Remember Paul's writing to people that he dearly loved and with whom he wants to make peace. 
So he has reminded them that they and him are family, that they are a holy people set apart and consecrated for the Lord, free and blessed richly by God. He calls them to unity, something that we looked at last week, where they could work through their differences and be united. And I wonder how many of you tried cheese and marmalade sandwiches after last week's service. Uh, some po folks did say to me afterwards that you couldn't say that you didn't like something if you hadn't tried it. So perhaps I've started a new craze. So although that there are beliefs that the early church was still trying to figure out, Paul is actually currently now trying to set the baseline. There is much that churches wrestle with and different denominations wrestle with, even within the Church of Scotland that we wrestle with. But there has to be that kind of theological baseline. As our previous Prime Minister, quite a few back now, once said, we have to get back to basics. So I suppose if you wanted to daydream through this, hang with me for a minute or two longer and then you can daydream if you wish. Paul wants us to know something really important. And he says, for us to know God means belonging to Christ. For us to know God means belonging to Christ. We have to belong to the crucified Christ. And for him, the mystery of God is revealed through Christ, through whom the saving work of God is, up, is at work. And this is the central premise of 1 Corinthians, and indeed Paul's understanding of the gospel as a whole. Jesus said to the disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And for Paul, his own life-changing experience, where he saw Christ who said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? A very personal uh, intervention by Jesus himself is the defining moment that shapes his theological outlook. So to know God, we need to belong to the crucified Christ. Human beings are naturally predisposed to working things out. Whether it's pushing the boundaries of space travel or a child stripping down a radio to see how it works, human beings simply want to know things. Science and religion for many a generation were at each other's throats as science debunked religious theories. Just ask Galileo. At other times, science has not been able to answer and there has been room for that creative element of another being. And what I love is that we are made in God's image and therefore God created a complex, creative, interdependent world full of curiosities. I mean, seriously, when you think of some of the designs of our animals, our plants uh, and so on, you have to look for that creative element and know that if we are made in God's image that we have that too and it develops that sense of curiosity so if we can love like God does we love because he loved us then we can seek wisdom and knowledge too yet sometimes well lots of times human beings get really really annoying they think that they know it all and the really arrogant ones well Imagine for a moment that the church in Corinth is actually incredibly arrogant. And this is what Paul is up against. The folks in the church in Corinth are glorifying themselves and not God. It's like, look at us, look how wise we are, look how um, knowledgeable we are. And they want to be seen in that light. 
Remember, we have a bunch of academics like the Alexandrians and plenty of Greeks who prize wisdom like we prize fast Wi-Fi. And so really the way to get around arrogance is to find a way to deflate them, to pop the balloon, if you like. You see, the problem with someone who knows it all is it's really difficult for them to hear a different perspective, a different point of view, the truth, and so on. So Paul does this by holding on to the image and the symbolism and the importance of the cross. Now for that, for us, that doesn't appear too shocking because in some ways we have normalized the cross and potentially disempowered it. But take a moment to remember the setting of this letter. It is a Roman settlement, indeed a significant Roman settlement. For them, the cross is not pretty. It's not fashioned into silver jewellery or hung upon church walls. Indeed, they, early Christians used the symbol of the fish, for example. For them, the cross is the Roman instrument of execution. Normally, religious symbols, and I'm sure you've seen these, especially if you've travelled a bit, were for fertility or for life. So they would be, say, grains of wheat or fruit or sexual organs. And here Paul is waxing lyrical about the cross, an instrument of execution and really the worst, the worst that was around at the time. So it's seriously a downer definitely designed to shatter their illusions of wisdom and to really pierce through the arrogance to shine a light in that which was actually suffocating their faith at this point. The cross, the symbol of our faith that stretches across generations and indeed denominations of the Christian faith, is for Paul that which reveals the mystery of God. It is God taking the initiative and it's his provision for the salvation of humankind as a deliberate and grace-filled act. It even establishes within this age the power of the age to come. And Paul brings this teaching to this human wisdom-loving church as a radical disparity, even a contradiction. I mean, it really was that kind of like that phrase, he didn't miss and hit the wall. He really, really went for it. And he sets up the wisdom of God against the wisdom of the world. Remember, belonging to Christ means to know God. And so Paul is shifting the seat of wisdom from human interpretation back to Christ. If you want to know God, you're not going to know him through yourself. You're going to know God through Christ, particularly the crucified Christ. And Paul associates human flourishing with knowing God, which is attained through the cross. Now, the Greeks at the time of Paul didn't believe that any God could have emotions. They had to be completely neutral. And therefore, the doctrine of incarnation, God as a human being, God who suffered, was just impossible. I mean, why would a God become a human being and then add in death and resurrection, and for the Greeks, mind blown. Hence, the foolishness of God. Because it just, it does not compute. And that's the thing with human wisdom. It's really a form of self-deception. 
And through Christ, Paul argues that we are delivered from that self-deception. We're not responsible because we get our knowledge, our wisdom through Christ. And this kind of triggered a wee thought in my head about humanism, which is something I know about, but I haven't really looked into it, obviously. And I thought, what do humanists actually believe? And so what I found was that humanists would say that moral values are properly founded on human nature and experience alone. All you need is reason, experience and evidence, not faith. Paul would say that human wisdom does not lead to flourishing. What is interesting is that Paul doesn't discredit the human wisdom and therefore I'm not going to do that either. This is not about picking on humanism. To be fair, there are parts I'm sure I could agree with. What Paul does, though, is show how faith gives them something that wisdom or reliance on human nature can't. Faith gives them identity and belonging. Faith gives them the capacity to love and forgive. Reason, experience and evidence will at some point eventually tell you to give up, walk away, and look after yourself. Faith tells you to forgive, to bless rather than curse, to share generously, and that through Jesus Christ, you are chosen, loved. In John's letter, he would say, you are the children of God. You have purpose. And this was very telling in the church in Corinth. Not all of them were slaves, but a significant proportion of the early church in Corinth would have been slaves. And slaves were objects to be used, abused and disposed of at will. In Christ, they are loved as children of God, equal with all the others who gather in worship. Whether you're the richest or the poorest in the church of God, you are all equal. And that's something that Paul has to deal with later on in the letters. But here, as Paul puts the great leveller out there, we are reminded that our identity is marked, symbolised by the cross, which Jesus tells us we must be willing to lift. Paul loves the fact that the church had the simplest and the humblest, and Jesus, who in his incarnation, also becomes the simplest and the humblest amongst us all. And it's Jesus who is the significant difference between communities of faith. When you look at the major religions of the world, you will find many common markers, many things that are the majority of the major religions actually do share, even creation stories, for example. But the God incarnate, who dies sacrificially and rises from the dead, is a significant difference. And that's why Paul reminds us all that at the heart of the Christian gospel is Jesus. To know God is to belong to Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he also said, I am the resurrection and the life. When we gather at his table, we focus on the Last Supper. But what does the Last Supper point us to? The bread, the body of Christ given for you, the wine the blood of Christ shed for you that the sins of many might be forgiven. Jesus said in one of them that he would not drink the wine again until he returned. And it's a moment of time that once again straddles the divide between this age and the age yet to come. 
And yes, it's foolishness to those who don't believe. It really, it's really hard to get your head around it. But there's also a time when Paul doesn't believe, back when his name was still Saul. It was foolishness to him. And those who believed in this foolishness should be punished, even executed or imprisoned. And yet God still chooses him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And within three days, he is preaching the gospel in the synagogues. His life doesn't improve that much. In fact, he has quite a tumultuous life and shipwrecks and beatings, imprisonment and all the rest of it because of his faith. But he never felt alone, abandoned or without identity. And he doesn't promise us a better life promises us freedom and at the end of the day what we truly need is freedom christ christ or christianity is foolishness when measured in the wisdom of the world we believe in a god who became a human being why would any god do that Certain human beings certainly want to become gods, but for gods to want to become us, mm, I don't think so. Why would God allow himself to be betrayed and killed, silent before his accusers? Why would God rather forgive than save himself? Why doesn't God just pull a Thanos and click his fingers? Human wisdom cannot penetrate the wisdom of God, but through Jesus we can know God. And so if we are to proclaim the good news, we need to proclaim Christ in our words and in our actions. And the Christ we proclaim is the one that we read about in the Gospels. We are walking, talking, breathing sermons every day of our lives. And I wonder, what have you preached or proclaimed this week? What have I preached or proclaimed this week? So as you sit at his table today, Ponder the wisdom of God that shatters our complacency and selfishness, that says you are welcome as you are. Absolutely, be a theologian, study his word, dig deep into the wonders of faith, but hold on to the simple fact that you can know God through Jesus Christ and that there is no one for whom Christ is inaccessible. Preach Christ in all ways and at all times and no God. Amen. Today we did have Holy Communion, hence references to that in our reflection. And if you want to take part in that, then do check us out on our social media channels on YouTube and on Facebook for the full service. I do hope that you have a very blessed week. Next week we are going to dip into the Gospels for a week before we have a couple of other preachers over the following two Sundays. But more on that next week. Thanks for being with us and I pray God's blessing upon you. May you know his presence in your daily life. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Bye for now.